Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay. And, um, and by the way, thanks to your work, <laughs> we have to tell you, I believe, that we're recording you. Is that not correct? I think so. <laughs> I, depending on which state you're in. Uh, okay, uh, California. So. Yeah. Uh, oh, I don't know what the law is there, but the, 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 the business about what's called, you know, one-way wiretapping is that in some states, if the police are recording you, they have to notify you. Uh, in other states, oh, right. they don't. As, as long and as one person knows, right? No, one person knows. And of course, the one person who knows is the one doing the tapping. Is the info- yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. But, but um, uh, that, that should have always been declared unconstitutional, but it, it never has been. And so, so whether or not informing the person who you're talking to that it's being recorded is a legal requirement, depends on which state you're in. Um, and so it requires you to know all the laws of all the states. So, so uh, my guess is, is that California requires it, but I don't know that for sure. Didn't, well, there, used to to have to, didn't there used to have to be a beep? that told people they were being recorded? Well, there was a beep in, at some times, but I think that also depended on on, on state law. And it was not a, a constitutional, uh, de- constitutionally determined matter. Um, when, when I was at the ACLU, uh, uh, I always told everybody, don't talk, don't say anything on the phone that you're not prepared to see on the front page of the Times tomorrow, because you never know who's listening in. <laughs> And, exactly. uh, and if and if people were listening in, there were no beeps. <laughs> so um, there you have it. Uh, I, by I, the way, is, yeah. this, is this videoed or is it just oral? No, no, we just recorded it. just audio. oral. Just yeah. oral. Don't worry. Yeah. Not no, that you look uh, wonderful. You look camera ready. Don't worry. But but yeah, we only no, use the audio. Know. Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting on, you know, as, uh, as uh, a fa- Arthur Rubenstein, the famous concert pianist was once asked, um, uh, how often you know he practiced and, and whether or not it made any difference. And he said, well, I'll tell you, he says, I practice pretty much every day. Uh, he was then in his 80s or something. And, and he said, uh, if I don't practice uh, for one day, um, I notice it, but I'm the only one who notices it. If I don't practice for three days, he says, the critics notice it. And if I don't practice for a week, Everybody knows. So I'm at that I'm at that stage somewhere between the first and the second stage where <laughs> where um, you know there are things that I notice that tell me that I'm slowing down, but most of the time nobody else notices it. But I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I, I went out in the basketball court not too long ago and and was stunned to discover that I no longer I knew I no longer could touch the rim when I jumped. Um, but the ball got stuck in the net at the bottom of the net and I wasn't able to jump up high enough to reach the bottom of the net. And I came home, you know, I had to find a stick to knock the ball out so I could keep shooting. And I came home and I, I, I told my wife, I was in shock. I said, you know, I think death is coming. 
it's it's on its way. It's it's record. I mean, I I, I I can't I couldn't I couldn't jump up high enough to get the ball out of the net. Never you know. So uh, so I don't play anymore. <laughs> but I it's still a, do. Um, and not to, I would never I would never ask a guest to disclose our age, but you are famously and it's in the documentary. I mean, we are talking to a gentleman who saw Jackie Robinson play live. So you guys can. Figure yeah, out how well, amazing I'm, I'm, it is that he's only barely touching the net. Okay. 83. <laughs> Fantastic. And as my grandchildren said, what are you talking about? He says, he, he was 15 and this is a couple of years ago. You're the, you're the strongest, you know, best in shape 80-year-old I know. I said, how many 80-year-olds do you know? He says, only you. <laughs> <laughs> so I told him, I said, well, i tell you, um, uh, when my grandfather's both of them were my age. They'd already been dead for 20 years. So we're ahead of the game. <laughs> this is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. talking to Ira Glasser and this is such an amazing thrill sir um you were the uh uh fifth executive director of the ACLU from the late 70s to uh 2001 um and Ira is a subject of a really fantastic documentary that's out now called Mighty, Mighty Ira a civil liberty story um and is streaming everywhere and um I I I have to tell you uh my wife um uh, my wife is in love with you, and it's um, it's uh, it's it's very uncomfortable around here. But um, <laughs> I, I do need to. So, if there's any tension between us, uh, that's that's where it's coming from. Um. Well, give me your email address. You know, I'm 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 uh, I'm I'm old, but I'm not dead. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut his mic. Uh, none of this stuff. But uh, no, really, thank you so much. It was like we saw the docker. It was like, oh my god, we have to get him on the show. Especially there was something about, and I don't want to spoil the film because it's wonderful. And it's one of those documentaries that just um, uh, there's a couple of different types of docs I like, but this is one where it's just you just feel like you spent an hour and a half with somebody that you've spent most of your life reading about, and it really. Um, I hope that's really you. I get the sense it probably is, but I really do get the sense that like we hung out for an hour and a half and some of the stories you tell uh, are incredible. And um, I love, and we don't generally talk about people's work on the show. We just talk about movies, but I, I don't want to paraphrase it. You're the way you drew a line from Jackie Robinson to your life's work was so amazing. Would it be horrible to ask you to kind of give a, like a brief explanation of that for our listeners? Well, I, I was nine years old in 1947, living in East Flatbush in Brooklyn. And, um, uh, you know, New York is, uh, has the reputation of being multi-ethnic and, and, and integrated. But the truth is, in those years, um, though that was true of the city as a whole, uh, everybody lived in very insular, uh, small, contained uh, ethnically segregated neighborhoods. I mean, I grew up, uh, most of them immigrant immigrant neighborhoods, 
my grandparents were immigrants. My parents were both born here, but in the early part of the 20th century. And we lived in a neighborhood where uh, you could walk for 10 blocks in any direction from my house, uh, from my apartment, and, and never find anybody who wasn't white and Jewish. Um, so, you know, so, so New York's reputation as a kind of an, uh, a multi-ethnic integrated melting pot was true uh, for the city as a whole, but it was not true for actually where, where and how people lived. So, you know, my parents were, 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 were FDR uh, liberals. Um, uh, they voted for Franklin Delano Roosevelt four times. They were rescued, uh, saw themselves as rescued, their lives saved by him as a, as a, during the depression. They, uh, I was, I, I was seven years old when, uh, when, when World War II ended. So I grew up during that whole uh, fear that people in America had of, uh, especially Jewish people of the, of the, uh, of the, of the Nazis and the way they were dominating. And, you know, in, in, in 1942, 43, 44, uh, when I was first sort of becoming aware of the world out there and there was war news every day in the newspapers and, and on the radio, uh, you know, it wasn't at all clear that we were going to prevail. Uh, you know, Hitler was going through Europe like you know a hot knife through butter, and and uh, uh, so these, these were these were you know heavy portentous times, and and uh, but despite the liberal ideology of of my parents and especially of my mother, um, uh, I uh, you know I never saw a black person. I didn't see one in any of my classes in public school or on the faculty or in shops where my mother shopped for food or whatever uh, or occasionally when they took me with them to vote uh, on the voting lines. Uh, my father was a construction worker with a fifth grade education and occasionally would take me to the union hiring hall with him. Uh, there were no blacks there. Um, there were no blacks anywhere. I didn't see them in the movies. I didn't see them any. I mean, it was just, just it was it was invisible, and and uh, so into this world, uh, my nine-year-old world, in 1947, comes Jackie Robinson, uh, and we were all we were all passionate, hot Brooklyn Dodger fans. I mean. Uh, uh, Jacques, Jacques Barzun, a, a comparative literature professor at Columbia, once called baseball America's secular religion, and uh, and and in fact, it you know it was, and 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 uh, and that's. Uh, I mean, I went to Hebrew school after public school four or five days a week, and uh, because my parents sent me there. I mean, and and but you know the truth is. And my, my grandparents were sort of very observant, uh, kosher, kept kosher Jews and, and um, uh, really orthodox in their, in their religious beliefs. But I grew up, you know, with my God was the Brooklyn Dodgers. And, and in, into this, uh, into this uh, drama comes Jackie Robinson in 1947. And, and um, uh, 
And he, you know, on a team full of exciting players, uh, he quickly became all of our, all of us on, on my block became our favorite player. He was exciting. He was dramatic. He, he, the way he danced off third base, the way he stole, the way he bunted, the way, I mean, he was, he, he was just the most passionate, exciting player. And we all loved him. And, 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 you know, and what mattered to us in those days um, was not the color of somebody's skin, but the color of their uniform. Uh, you know, I said that if Robinson had come up with the Yankees, uh, I might have been a racist. You know, and it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was, but of, but of course, you know that was impossible because the Yankees, uh, in principle, in New York, uh, were like the third uh, from the last team in the major leagues to hire a black player, and it wasn't until 1955 or 56 when 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 they did that. So there was no chance of that of that really happening. So. Robinson comes into this world of ours and immediately we are all immersed in this struggle over integration in a way that none of us were prepared for, none of us knew about, but because Robinson was our guy, Robinson was our hero, here we have all of these white Jewish kids in Brooklyn uh, uh, identifying with the struggle of a black man for equality in 1947, during a time when, when segregation was so complete by law in the South and by custom in the North, that most kids like me grew up without any contact with black folks at all in any area of our life. And, and the first place I learned about Jim Crow, you know, that, that blacks, in many states in this country are not allowed to be in hotels that whites are in, that not allowed to be in restaurants, that not allowed to be in swimming pools, use drinking water, fountains, all of that. I learned that not in school, not from a book, not in the newspapers, not from my liberal parents, all of that, is unknown to me. I learned that listening to the radio broadcast games in St. Louis. St. Louis at the time was the westernmost, southernmost uh, city in which Major League Baseball was played, and and it was it was a Jim Crow city. So I'm listening to the games on the radio at nine, ten, eleven, uh, broadcast by Red Barber. Uh, who's from Mississippi with a heavy Southern drawl. And he is describing the games. And one of the things I learned in those games is that when the Dodgers travel to St. Louis, the black players uh, cannot stay in the same hotel as the rest of the team, cannot eat at the same restaurants as the rest of the team. Um, and that's how I learned about Jim Crow. And that's how I come to hate it. And not because I was a liberal, not because somebody was drumming equality into my head, not because um, uh, of politics, but because they can't do that to my guy. Right. You know, Robinson is is our hero, and that you know it was um, so at a time when baseball is the most important thing in a nine, ten year old boy's life. 
Uh, and I say boys' life because girls were systematically excluded from sports in those years. Um, uh, at a time when, when, when the most important thing in our lives was baseball and, and the Dodgers and, and, and their success, Robinson, the most popular player, the player we identified with, the player who, whose batting stance I copied when I played ball on the empty lots, the, you know, the, the, all of that, they are going after him. And, and the ferocity of our loyalty to our team uh, at that age and that time right. place was immense. So, so without quite knowing what was happening and not, not intellectually and not cognitively, but viscerally, you know, in our gut, when Robinson is attacked uh, by, by other racist ballplayers or managers, uh, uh, we feel like we're attacked. And when he is excluded, we feel like we're excluded. And you become identified with that in a way that you're not even aware of. And it gets into your blood and your bones in a way that's almost unconscious. Years later, I mean, you know, 20 years later, when I come to work at the ACLU for the first time, I discover quite by, you know, what I thought was an accident, but which I knew was statistically impossible to have been an accident, that all of the guys around my age at the ACLU were Dodger fans, were old Dodger fans, all of them. There was, I think, one Giant fan and no Yankee fans. And I'm thinking to myself, by that time, you know, I had been a math professor. I, I, I had taught statistics and probability. I mean, I knew that, that that could not be an accidental distribution. And, and uh, so I discovered, you know, I developed this kind of pop sociology at the time where I, I said, you know, well, if you grew up in the, in the 40s and 50s in New York uh, uh, and you were a Dodger fan, you grew up to believe in civil rights and civil liberties. <laughs> And if you were a Yankee fan, you grew up to believe in oil depletion allowances, you know. And if you were if you were a Giant fan, you were basically confused, you know. And 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 I and I would you know I would do this almost as a stand-up comedy routine. And I ended up writing some serious stuff about about what it meant to be a nine-year-old white kid uh, and learning about. Uh, learning about Jim Quay that we did and how that had an impact on my entire generation of kids wow. growing up during that period. And not only, not only rooting for it, but when I went to Ebbets Field to see the games when I, a couple of years later when I was 11 and I was old enough to go by myself, uh, I would find myself sitting next to a 40-year-old black guy drinking beer. And, and we were on Sorry, the he was, he was drinking beer, right? He was drinking yeah, beer, okay. right? <laughs> It was one of my great disappointments in life when I got old enough to drink beer that I didn't like beer. Oh. You know, I said, how can that be? That was one of my goals is to be able to drink beer at the ball game. And then, you know, I ended up drinking egg creams anyway. And the, the, um, uh, uh, but, but there I am, I'm sitting next to this black guy and we're on the same side. We are rooting for the same thing. And, and, and when something good happens with the Dodgers, you know, we're standing up and pounding and touching, physically touching each other, you know, pounding each other on the back, whatever it is that, that you do in those moments of games. 
And it wasn't until many years, and I grow up thinking that this is normal. I mean, this feels normal to me. It feels good. It feels, you know, um, and many years later, I came to realize that in 1947, 48, 49 in America, Ebbetsfield was probably the only racially integrated public accommodation in the country. Wow. And we were all immersed in it in a way that didn't feel, you know, anything but natural. And, and, and so I, I began to think years later, thinking back on it, that that had a lot to do with who I became and what, what I, I, I came to believe in and, and fight for. And, and, you know, when, 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 30 years later, they tried to build an integrated housing uh, in, in, in a part of New York City that had been all white and, and the white residents from liberal New York uh, resisted it. For me, by that time, I'm the head of the New York Civil Liberties Union. And, and for me, um, that was a replay of what happened in right. baseball, you know, in 1947, 48 and so forth. So, so it became a, uh, um, I regret to have taken up so much of your time, but that was, but that, that's my, that's my brief version of the, uh, of the, of the story of, of, of the storyline of Jackie Robinson to the ACLU. No, it's, it's fantastic. And I, I, I can relate to that so strongly because when I was a kid, uh, our guy was Muhammad Ali and all we knew about right. Vietnam, I was very young, was that it was something our parents were against and which, you know, as you know, means it might be good for all we know. Our parents don't like it, but then you find out, you know, what his feelings were on it and what they did to him for not going. And, and that just instantly, you know, all of us were like, Oh, this is bad. This is bad. They're going after our guy. Yeah. yeah. No, that's and, right. Yeah, that is... can, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's lovely. It also, by the way, it does kind of segue nicely into what we're supposed to be talking about. <laughs> uh, Cause um, uh, I was going to talk about some of the movies that sort of uh, affected various parts of his I guess, kind of uh, the development of your psyche and your views and your beliefs and your character. Um, and the first one on your list was uh, the Jackie Robinson story, right? Yes. Well, for years when people would ask me what my favorite movie was, I would always say half jokingly because, you know, it wasn't uh, a great movie. Um, but I would always say, oh, my favorite movie is the Jackie Robinson story, um, which was made, I think, in 1950, uh, three years after he broke the color barrier in, in, in baseball. And it actually starred him. Uh, he played himself in that movie. And, um, and uh, I think Ruby D played, played his wife, Rachel. And, uh, uh, and, you know, for me, it was like, a, you know, a, an Orthodox Catholic watching a passion play. I mean, I was just, uh, you know, this was, wow, you know, Having having heard my description a minute ago of the of the role that 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 drama played in my young life, when when that movie comes out in 1950, I'm 12 years old. It was just I could have watched it 35 times. Just, and then you know I never really saw it again after after that. Um, and by the time uh, the much better movie comes out. Uh, in the early part of the, this century in, in uh, uh, 42, uh, right. Chadwick Boseman, um, uh, I 
take my grandchildren to that movie because they, you know, they are, they were at the time were, were 10, 11, 12. They were about my age when Robinson broke in and they had been hearing the Jackie Robinson story for me since they were, had consciousness, you know, and, and they knew all about the story. And of course they found it uh, almost by talking about dinosaurs. I mean, they grew up watching baseball when, when most of the players were not white. And, you know, I mean, so the idea that there was a time when all of the players were white and that you, if you were black, you couldn't play was to them, you know, it was like, it was really like talking about something prehistoric. I mean, it was, uh, so, so, so when 42 comes out, we go together and, and they, you know, here they were, they were eight, nine, 10 years old. They knew the story cold because <laughs> they'd been hearing it for me for, you know, forever. And, 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 um, and uh, you know, and they knew the significance of it, um, but, but they never saw the original movie and I never particularly thought it was worthwhile showing it to them because it wasn't a great film, but it had that, that, that impact on me because it was something I had lived through at the time and, and it was such a morality play for me. Mm. Um, uh, but then 42, uh, you know, really, really showed it pretty accurately and um, uh, and the only discordant note is in in forty two. Um, at one point, one of the rival pitches uh, intentionally hits Robinson with the pitch, and um, and they got it wrong in the movie. In the movie, I think it was a a left-handed pitcher, and in reality, it was a right-handed pitcher, or the reverse. I don't remember now, but I knew that incident so well that that when I saw the movie I said that's not right and you know and and I was sure it wasn't right I had to go home and look it up and I was right that it wasn't right and it was an insignificant you know detail in the movie which was otherwise fairly historically um, uh, accurate about its representations and uh, but I was disappointed only because you know Chadwick Boseman was a great actor. Yeah. Jackie Robinson, he wasn't. Oh, oh you mean as a, as a player or a? Yeah, no, I mean that. You no, know, the whole idea that an outsized hero like Robinson uh, could be played by anybody. Right. Uh, he was sort of you know <laughs> in part, You know, for anybody else watching it, it was fine because they had never seen him. Right. But um, for anybody who had seen him. He was uh, he was a, such a such a uniquely uh, electric character on the field that um, it was it was not something anybody else could really portray. Which is why I think they they used him to star in the actual film in 1950, even though by by that time he was a little older and a little chubbier. <laughs> um, but he's really good. But he's really good in it. I mean, That's what I was going to ask, yeah. is he? Okay. Yeah, so it's it's a it's a it's a low budget independent movie that didn't get a lot of play naturally because it was about what it was about, um, and it's public domain now, so it's it's okay. hard to find decent prints uh, wow. of it. But yeah. it's occasionally run on some of the cable channels, uh, and actually a little it's in rotation a little more often actually these days, and, and the, the print isn't really very good, but. Um, but he's, he's he holds his own. I mean, he's he he plays himself better than I would play myself. 
Really? Yeah. Well, he was, you know, he was playing baseball. You know, the interesting thing about Robinson was that um, he was a multi-sport athlete uh, of extraordinary uh, talent and skills. And baseball was his worst sport. <laughs> I did not know that. that. You know, something that very few people know, but, but you know, he was a, at UCLA. He was a star football player, a star basketball player a start, you know, track and field, long jump guy. I mean, and, and, uh, and baseball was really his, his and he was by far not the best player in the old Negro League when he came up and resentment by a lot of the players who had uh, been major stars and, and was sort of, uh, uh, if they were going to bring anybody into the white leagues, uh, you would have thought it would have been then on uh, people like Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson and Oscar Charleston. And, but those people were all a older. I mean, Robinson was no youngster when he comes up to the Dodgers, he's 29 at a time when, you know, uh, most players are, are, are beginning their downward, downward cycle. Um, you know, Willie Mays comes up at 20. Uh, uh, Robinson comes up at 29 and, and yet he has a scintillating 10 year career, but, but Ricky chooses him as I think the movie, uh, at least in 42 shows pretty accurately. Ricky <clears throat> chooses him because he knows what hostile and angry and brutal response uh, he's gonna get. And he chooses him in large part, not only for his talent as a baseball player, but for his character, right? Because he knows that that's what it's going to take to make this this uh, successful, and um, uh, and that turned out to be you know an absolutely brilliant choice. And Branch Rickey, as as the, the guy who who engineered all this, is uh, doesn't receive enough publicity and credit um, on the on the on the days when. Uh, when, when, when people talk about, about 1947 and what Robinson did. I mean, Ricky was uh, an astonishing character of his own. Uh, well, let's, let's, let's move from, from baseball. What's your next, uh, what's your next film, Myron? Well, around the period of time, uh, you know, early 50s, one of my favorite films, I was a Western fan. Mm. And I still am, uh, and and I, I I could make a list of twenty five of my favorite films that were you know only all westerns, uh, but I think my favorite all time one was the one that certainly seemed to have an effect on me. The one I saw when I was you know, fourteen or fifteen was Shane, um, and uh, I always was sort of attracted to to. Uh, the idea of, of sort of this loner, you know, appearing um, with an extraordinary talent and an extraordinarily heroic demeanor and trying to get away from that and trying to blend in and trying to uh, uh, be ordinary uh, in a way that the world did not let him be ordinary. And um, the whole, that whole dynamic between uh, Alan Ladd's portrayal of, of the character Shane 
and the relationship with uh, Van Heflin as as the, uh, the the sort of the tough, um, gritty, uncompromising farmer uh, and his wife and his and uh, 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 Jean Jean Arthur, I think it was right, and mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and 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 Brandon uh, Dewilda. Uh, Dewilda playing playing uh, playing the kid in an extraordinary role, and I think that was also Jack Palance's uh, first movie, or at least it was his first. It was his first that shot him to stardom, um, and it was just you know uh, I saw it only recently again on television, and it it didn't fade for me. You know, sometimes when you see a movie you loved thirty years ago, you see it again, and it doesn't strike you the same way. You've changed, sure. the experience of seeing it the first time is different from the experience of seeing it subsequently. Um, but I, I continued to love Shane. I thought it was a, it was a, it was a great, great movie. And um, uh, so that was, that was, uh, that was one. It's, it's uh, lovely. The, um, uh, I'm trying to remember, what, actually wasn't, was, it was his first, definitely his first starring. I think Panic in, Panic, in Panic in the Streets. Panic in the Streets. Panic in the Streets was his Panic first. Panic in the Streets was his first. That's right. Because I, I remember I, Walter Jack Palance. That's, yeah, I saw Walter him, Jack. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. I saw him uh, only a year or two before he died. He came to the American Cinematheque for it and they screened Panic in the Streets. Um, mm. Are you there, Joe? Did you refer to this? Yeah, or? yeah. And I, do you remember somebody stood up and they do the Q&A and somebody asked them, you know, there was some scene that they were interested in. They were like, you know, can you talk about... Uh, I don't you know how many takes you did doing this scene or everything. And Paul Hitz goes, Jesus Christ, I made that movie 50 years ago. I don't even remember making it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's exactly, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, people sometimes will ask me about, about uh, some case. Now, I mean, right. you know, Skokie, a case like Skokie, though it happened, you know, 40 something years ago, is, is etched in, in my brain be you know in a way that's 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 virtually indelible but there were many you know very important critical cases and you know that happened you know in the 60s and the 70s and people ask me about them like they expect me to know to remember it in detail uh, 40 50 years later uh and and you don't you know and you and and so that's a yeah that's a that's that's a that's a wonderful uh that's a wonderful reply because you know, you do these things and then um, you move on. Right. But people who relate to them, relate to them in a, in a way that makes them feel very contemporary. They expect their sense of, of this just happened yesterday uh, to also be yours. Right. <laughs> and right. Uh, so Glenn says, you know, what are you talking about? I was 50 years ago. I don't even remember making it. That's that. I'm, I'm sure that that's true for, for many performers and and uh, and many lawyers and and uh, people who have all kinds of experiences that other people uh, uh, continue to take as more significant than the people who actually participated at the time. Yeah. Well, also memory is so fascinating too, because part of the way you remember things is by relating them. And if it's That's a story right. that you've told a million times, you're remembering your memory of your memory of your memory. Isn't exactly. It? Exactly. And, yeah. Yeah. But uh, you know, one of the one of the films that that was very uh, uh, I remember as being very formative for me as a young adult in my you know 19, 20, 22, was last year at Marienbad, which. Mm. Um, uh, which I remember intensely 
uh, feeling was very significant. I thought I understood it in a time when it was a movie that nobody understood. And I, I remember I was teaching math at the time at Sarah Lawrence College. And I remember sitting around in the faculty dining room having lunch with a bunch of professors who were you know, 15, 20, 25 years older than I was. And, and they got around to talking about this film, which was 1962 or something. And it was, it was uh, you know, very au courant at the time. And, and nobody understood it. Everybody professed to be completely mystified by it. And I remember doing this little, this little whiff uh, uh, on it that left people sort of stunned. I mean, there I was, this was the youngest person on the faculty, and I was carrying on about this movie and talking about it. And I wrote Grier and, and, uh, and wrote the screenplay and relating it to a novel that he had written in the French New Wave. And, and all of this was just because, you know, I had studied that novel in college a few mm. years before. And, and, uh, and the film uh, uh, was ununderstandable unless you had understood what Rogrier was writing and what he was trying to do with phenomenology and, and the surfaces. And I had this whole long explanation of this film, which was people reacted to as if it was quite dazzling. So in thinking about the movie uh, uh, earlier uh, today, um, uh, to sort of prepare myself to maybe talking about it with you, I could not remember what my explanation was. <laughs> I, 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 knew, I knew that it dazzled people, but, and so, you know, I pulled out of my bookcase, uh, Rob Grier's novel, literally has not been out of my bookcase in 65 years. <laughs> and I pulled it out and I looked through it to see if I could, you know, regenerate in myself. Right. What was it that I saw in last year at Marion Bad that I, thought I made me understand it as well as I thought I did. I think it's fair to say I no longer remember why. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joe, what is last year at Miriam Bad about? Go, quick. It's about 113 minutes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, well done. Well done. Um, well, what's, what's next, Ira? What's your... Well, you know, the, the, the Seventh Seal was part of a wave of what we then called uh, foreign films that had um, burst upon the scene in, 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 in really in post-war America in the late 40s, but really became vibrant and plentiful in the, uh, in the late 50s and early 60s uh, from Italy, from, from Sweden. And, and uh, while I was never a huge fan of Fellini, uh, or, or the Italian wave of films, with, with the exception of La Strada, which I loved. Um, uh, Ingemar Bergman hit us like a ton of bricks. I mean, uh, Wild Strawberries first, and then The Seventh Seal. And I, I think at the time, I thought The Seventh Seal was the best movie ever. You know, it was, it was philosophical, it was profound. It did everything that no movie from Hollywood ever did. Um, you know, it, it had no glitz, it had no happy ending, it had, it had no uh, uh, sort of illusory, romantic vision of what life was about. It was like reading a Dostoevsky novel, only mm. now it was on film. And, and um, I just loved that movie. I must have seen it 14 times, you know, and then just 
and I never had enough of it, and 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 it was, it it seemed to me to uh, come to grips with, with with, the the existential place of people in a in a dreary world. You know, it was all of a piece at the time, with with Samuel Beckett and with right. with uh, Eugene Ionesco, and and with that whole wave of of. Uh, and with Kierkegaard, and you know, I was very taken with all of the dark view of of, of men's uh, position in the universe, and the senselessness of it, and the pointlessness of it, and the effort to find meaning um, amidst that pointlessness, um, and its clash with with traditional uh, religion, and the way in which religion gave meaning to people's existence in a way that a lot of us found unsatisfying and unacceptable. Um, and the seventh seal sort of responded to all of that. Mm. And, um, uh, so that was a, that was a, uh, a great film. And even now, if I see that it's going to be on television, um, it's very difficult for me to resist not twisting myself out of shape to make sure I, I, I see it again. Um, it's such uh, a great film. And I, we've, talked about it a couple times before on the show and I always I know I said the same thing but it's just because I know there are people you know a lot of our listeners are haven't seen all these films it's one of the reasons we, we do this and it right. just uh Bergman when I came to him just had such a, a patina of um importance and it felt like homework and then you finally see the seventh seal and it's everything you're saying is true but it's also entertaining as hell Yes, exactly. That's exactly. uh, that. That's something that uh, people people have to have to know going in. It's like this is not no, homework. It's, 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 this it's, is not homework. Just <laughs> explain. Just to explain to them that that the Virgin Spring uh, it, it led them to Last House on the Left. That's right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Fantastic. So what's next? Well, um, the uh, war movies. Um, uh, you know, I grew up during World War. Two, I was seven years old when World War II ended, and and the war was a big part of my my psyche as a as a kid growing up in it, and uh, so I've always sort of been a fan of war movies, but I think my my favorite war movie about World War II mm-hmm. was A Walk in the Sun, um, which I only discovered really. Uh, I think in my 40s. I had not known about that movie. I don't, I'm sure I didn't see it when it first came out. Um, uh, and, I, and, I, and I later saw it, you know, only in a, as a DVD. But I, I thought it was, a, it was a, a wonderful movie about the pointlessness and meaninglessness and, and you know, existential angst of what war was for the people who actually had to fight it. You know, it was not a John Wayne world at all. Uh, and it was not even, you know, a Kirk Douglas world in, 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 in the Path of Glory or anything like that. It was, it was not meaningful at all. It was just a bunch of ordinary people thrust into a situation where they had no options and no authority and no capacity to make decisions and they just had to find a way to get through it and and so you have these you know this troop of guys landing on a beach in Italy toward the end of the war and and 
marching through a deserted farmland area of, of Italy at a time when it's still sort of behind enemy lines. And their task for reasons that they don't know is to blow up a certain bridge, which they have a map of how to get to. And they're walking along, you know, and they're, and they're sort of keeping themselves entertained. And they have some really snappy kind of dialogue that's a little hokey, but funny. And, is a, and it's a classic, it's a classic post-World War II thing. You know, you have an Italian guy and a guy from Brooklyn and a guy, you know, an Irish guy, and a guy who's writing in his diary imaginary letters to his sister. And they're all trying to make sense out of what's something that's essentially senseless. You know, in a, in a way, it's thematically not all that different mm. from the Seventh Seal in that, in that way. There are people in an, you know, in an existentially uh, uh, dark and gloomy and pointless situation that has no meaning other than the meaning that they give to it and that probably is going to end up with in death that they can't avoid but they still have this sense of duty and they continue to do what they do and they march along and they you know they they they, they some of them fall along the way uh and then they find this farmhouse that is guarded by by germans with machine guns and that stands between them and this bridge they're supposed to blow up. And they end up, they end up with, you know, a third of them dying, uh, but they take the farmhouse and they blow up the bridge. And then uh, John Ireland, who uh, is, plays the soldier, who in a way is the narrator of the film. And he does is he, he, he write, he's a writer and he writes in his diary to his sister Frances uh, and, and, and so periodically throughout the film, he has these entries, uh, these comments on, on what's going on um, as he sort of is above the fray. And, and I think in the last, and after all of this sturm and drama, all this, this drama and the death and the psychological breakdowns and, and the pointlessness of it, uh, at the end, when they finally have taken the farmhouse and killed all the Germans and many of them died uh, in doing so and blown up the bridge. I think the last line of the film is Ireland, uh, ent last entry to his sister Francis. Dear Francis, um, uh, it's nothing unusual today. We just took a farmhouse and blew up a bridge. And, and it just sort of, that's the way, you know, it, it, that's the, the way the thing ends. And, um, and I just thought it was, you know, as honest uh, a depiction of, of what war is to the ordinary mm -hmm. people who fight it and who are, uh, uh, and I thought, so I've always sort of loved that, that movie um, uh, really is more than, more than any other war movie. And, and, as, and, and, uh, uh, Somebody asked me for a list of my ten favorite movies of any kind. That would have to be on. It's a great movie, and it's very poetic. Uh, it's it's criminally I've un never seen unknown. It. Uh, hardly hardly yes. anybody has. It's never revived. It's um, seldom televised. Uh, it, it used to be a staple when I was a kid on TV. They used to they used to run a lot on Channel Thirteen. But um, 
and it's you know made by the director of All Quiet on the Western Front, so he's not you know he's, he's he knows what he's talking about. Uh, but right. it's um, it, it's one of the best written war pictures ever, uh, and the cast, which is very diverse, is um, they're they're all terrific. I mean, even Hunts Hall is in this movie playing a straight part. Yeah. Uh, and Norman well, Lloyd and is Norman Lloyd, Lloyd, yeah. he's, he's only 60 part. at this yeah. point right um, <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> Didn't yeah he just okay. died like 106 100 and, 106 and 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 uh, he, he was he was uh, in top form up to the end and then something crazy happened that has never happened before or since. Uh, our entire system just completely crashed and it took forever to get back up. So we had to rearrange to get back with Ira a little bit later. So while we are picking up the pieces, uh, let's just take a moment and thank our sponsor, MoviesUnlimited.com, the movie collector's website. They are not only huge fans of our show, but they feature many of the movies we discuss here, so you can easily find them to add to your collection. Sure, you can stream a lot of stuff these days, but when you buy your favorites, you watch what you want, when you want it, and there's usually a ton of great content and bonus features, like director's commentary, deleted scenes, and all sorts of goodness. Uh, Also, um, they are having, uh, for the entire month of October, it's Haunted Halloween with scary good deals on everything horror. So support our sponsor, Head over to MoviesUnlimited.com, the movie collector's website. Doing anything? No? Then click the Movies Unlimited banner on our Trailers from Hell website and buy your favorites from hard-to-find films, imports, and more. Go now to MoviesUnlimited.com, the movie collector's website, where shipping is always free on orders over $50. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It was nice. Your system at least was, was or my system, I should say, because uh, that's what the crash was, was polite enough to crash at a perfect ending point. A perfect for ending, it. yes. Yeah, well, that one. So that's that's good. Well, um, you gave me a list. Uh, you gave me a list of the of of uh, the six films that I had listed for you that we hadn't talked about yet, and I, of course, have thought about a number more. One of which I have to mention. Um, there's there's many there's many but one of which I have to mention I just know how I left that out of the original list and that's Lonely of the Brave oh you know with uh, yeah no please I actually it's so funny I I literally just got that on Blu-ray I have not seen it since I was about 11 I'm eager to watch it again I'm hoping it holds up it holds up Um, I can't wait to hear you talk about it if it doesn't hold up there's something wrong with you Uh, let's, let's go yeah tell me tell me tell me well, it, you know, it's um, uh, as you as you may have figured out so far. I, I mean, I'm I'm kind of very big on um, morality tales and and populated by uncommon heroes and um, with with, um, with 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 various values that I treasure at stake always. And Lonely of the Brave, of course, Lonely of the Brave was written by Dalton Trumbo, who at the time I first saw the movie, I didn't realize that he was one of the blacklisted guys and, right. and all the rest although once you realize that he was the one who wrote it 
you can you you can understand a lot of the dialogue in a different in a different way, but but um, you know Carol O'Connor plays that truck driver who who hits the horse at the end, uh, you know, and the truck is full of what toilet bowls or something like that, yeah. which is I guess a metaphor of some kind, and Walter Matthau plays this this uh, the cynical uh, sardonic kind of sheriff who uh, pretends that he doesn't know who. Kirk Douglas is at the end when he's lying there uh, close to death or, or maybe dying. Um, the movie is never clear about that, right? Um, as to whether or not he survives. The horse doesn't survive, but... but no, without, um, his, without his horse, he doesn't want to survive. That's just, <laughs> exactly, mm. exactly. But it's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a kind of a scream against... Um, the modern world by somebody who refuses to adjust to things that um, disturb his sense of the way things ought to be. And it's a, it's a, it's a heroic story and, and uh, of resistance to something which is really irresistible and in the end gets him. Um, but, but it's, um, uh, I thought it was a great film. I, I've always, I've always uh, loved it. I saw it again not too long ago after not seeing it for a long time. And you're right, it does, it holds up. Um, uh, anyway, so that was, that was one. And then the, on the original list, there was Casablanca, of course, which, yes. you know, is maybe, maybe if I had to pick one single movie that I never tire of watching, um, my wife and I would have to fight between Casablanca and On the Waterfront, but 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 uh, Casablanca, I always see something in it that I didn't hadn't seen before, even though I've watched it a hundred times, you know. And it's it's um, uh, it's also you know a great story of of resistance to to something which seems futile to resist, and and heroic characters, and and uh, uh, and of course you know incomparably beautiful Ingrid Bergman and, and, and Sam playing the piano and, and um, that wonderful guy behind the bar. And it's just, a, it, you know, all the, all the characters in it are special. And, uh, uh, and it's just a perfect movie. And, you know, and, and I found out, you know, years later that how haphazardly it was put together. Yeah. It's such a mess, yeah. You know, and yeah. and and so it shows you something about you know that the uh, systematic planning is not all that it's cracked up to be. <laughs> I mean, I, I sit there, you know, my, my 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 day job as a screenwriter. It's it's I learned very early on. You need to know where you're going before you start the journey, right? And uh, I I always like to have the ending. Um, I know where it is in my head. Every now and then it changes. You, something else presents itself that's better, but you have to have that ending. And yes. Joe, my incorrect, my understanding has always been that, I mean, they didn't know what they were going to do and they tried, they were going to try a bunch of different endings and they just shot that one. Is that it? Well, they, yeah, that's pretty they... much it. I mean, is it, who's, he, who's, who's she going to go off with? You yeah. Uh, yeah. But they literally had no idea while they were making it. That's no, I, where thought, it was I thought when I heard, I thought I heard that they, that they actually did have a, a, another ending where he, she goes off with, uh, with Rick. And um, 
Uh, well, there's a whole book about it, uh, yeah. which uh, came out, I think, about two years ago, uh, which is a big, thick book, which is a day by day. You know, this is what this is what happened. This is what went oh, wrong. Wow. This is <laughs> this is who had to rewrite this. Uh, and it's quite it's it's really remarkable because it's one of those cases where, you know, you put all the monkeys at the typewriter and then you end up with Shakespeare. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's well, just... it was a uh, uh, it was a it was a great and suitable ending. I mean, I think everybody who watched it wanted them to go off together but that you know that that kind of tough guy existential speech you know there's yes. things i have to do and you can't follow me and i and then he walks off with claude rains you know in the, into that fog it really was a, per, a perfect a perfect ending and um, uh and no matter how many times you watch it it's 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 uh it moves you you know it's it's a uh as do all the scenes. I mean, all of them. The you know the the Peter Laurie running around and getting himself killed, and the the scenes with the German general and the and the Marseillais song in the in the cafe, and it's it's a uh, and the and the woman from from uh, where where was she from? Um, oh, like the the young Romanian Bulgaria. girl over there, Bulgaria. Bulgaria. Yeah. Yes. yes, and uh, and 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 how he fixes you know that so that, that her husband wins the money. I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a great, it's a great, you know, I'm tough as nails, nothing moves me uh, except sentimentality. <laughs> and it's a quintessential World War II movie. I mean, yes, it, it is. It, it's, it's stirring because of that, even to later generations. That's right. I think, I think. I think, well, I think about no. the, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no I was saying in 1942, when it was made, I guess, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, it was not at all clear who was going to win. I mean, everybody, everybody looking back on it, who were not adults at the time, uh, you know, I can't, I think can't understand what it must have been like um, in 42 and 43, when it wasn't at all clear who was going to win in the Pacific and who was going to win in Europe. And, and, um, uh, you know, the our side was getting was getting routed, really, and and um, I, you know, I never really talked to my parents about that, uh, but you know, they were they were married in 1937. They had me in 1938. I had my sister in 1943, and you wonder what it was like for young people with their whole life in front of them oh. to be. To be living at a time when it wasn't at all clear that there was going to be a life, you know, of 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 any kind, and of course they were Jews and 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 uh, they were not particularly observant, but that didn't matter. Um, uh, you know, somebody once asked me when I was a teenager, how 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 do you how do you know, you know, if you're not if you're not observant and as I was not, um, how do you know uh, you're Jewish? And I said, well, if if you were in Germany in 1942, you would have known it because they would have killed you. That was the way you found out, <laughs> you know, and it, it didn't matter what else was, was the case. And that was, you know, and it was true in the Pacific also, you know, after, after Pearl Harbor for at least a year after that, it was, it, it looked, it looked hopeless. And, you know, what it was like for people, you know, and here in Casablanca, you have all of these people looking to go to America as if it were, um, you know, a fortress behind which they would be safe. And it wasn't at all clear that that was true. And um, 
uh, so yeah, it was an essential World War II movie, I think, and 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 it captures that. I think it captures that very effectively, and um, uh, yes. and it helps. It helps to know how it turned out, because you know, <laughs> if, in, <laughs> if, if in 1942 you saw Humphrey Bogart and Claude Rains walk off into the fog, you wouldn't have really known whether they ever made it back. You know, <laughs> right? I I think my um... I mean, one of the things I love about it is it was probably, you know, my 30th time through where it occurred to me that the letters of transit are the most ridiculous device I've ever seen in a movie. Ever, and right? you don't care. And you don't care. It's the, oh, MacGuffin. the most wanted man. The Nazis want this guy more than anybody, but God damn it. He has a letter. Right? <laughs> we have to let him go. And somehow it works. But my, my favorite, I think I've told Joe about this before, but my favorite, time ever seeing it was decades ago um i lived in the south bay in, in california in, uh, uh hermosa beach and they had just opened a multiplex around the corner from our place and we took a couple of young friends to see casablanca there they'd never seen it and i think they had six theaters and five of them showed new movies and one of them was showing every day a different classic so we took some young friends to see casablanca and they get to the airport and you've been building up to this whole moment and there's an earthquake ah. and everybody in the theater did the same thing. We all just, you put your hands out going, come on, calm down, calm down. We're all just like, shh, 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 like that. And we wrote it out and stayed to the end of the movie, you know, which is only 10 minutes. And then we all leave the theater and we find out that in every one of the other theaters that was showing new releases, everybody had just gotten up <laughs> and run out into the lobby. Yeah, yeah. But in Casablanca, we stuck it out for the ending. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, that's a movie idea. review you could trust. You, you know, <laughs> Right. Well, Rick, Rick, Rick wouldn't, Rick wouldn't have left. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you go down with the ship. <laughs> That's right. So uh, that's a great okay, film. So on to the next morality. Sure. Yeah. 12 angry, 12 angry men. Um, that would have to be on your list. Yeah, I suppose so. You know, I realized that, uh, that there were at least three courtroom dramas that were on my list and everybody, you, you would say, Oh, well, ACLU sure. But these were all movies that uh, I loved and saw before I had anything to do with the ACLU. It was, uh, you know, 12 Angry Men, Inherit the Wind, and Judgment at Nuremberg. And since I gave you that list, I thought of another one, Witness for the Prosecution, mm -hmm. which, was, which was a, you know, a fabulous, I mean, there, there, there are lots of good courtroom dramas. There's, there's, there's Anatomy of a Murder, and there's, there's The Verdict, the, the, the Paul Newman one. But Witness for the Prosecution, was was uh, was one of the one of the great uh, Charles Lawton and and and, uh, and uh, what's her name? Who I'm Dietrich. 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 Yeah. Dietrich. Yes, it was a, in a stupendous role, and it was it was a great you know, it was a great movie. But but you know, Twelve Angry Men, Inherit the Wind, and Judgment at Nuremberg were all sort of um, for me contemporary legal morality plays, and and um, uh, knowing how I ended up spending my life, you can you can sort of see why those would have appealed to me, um, and what the values were. You know, in Twelve Angry Men, uh, you have you have uh, fairness becomes the issue, and due process, and one guy saying wait a minute, and and not being stampeded by the rest of the crowd, and slowly and painstakingly turning them around. Um, uh, and uh, you know all kinds of, of 
tyrannical, impatient people in the room. Um, I, I, I want to ask, because like you, you were, and I remember this from, from when I was a kid. And um, so like I, I said earlier, I sort of, you know, came of age. I was very aware of what, uh, what was going on in Skokie and that thing. And, yeah. um, uh, and, you know, would see you on TV and, um, you know, you would sometimes go on these shows or you'd be in these town halls or whatever in a room full of people whose immediate reaction to the position you were arguing was like, get this guy out of here. And you always seem happy, which I think helps. <laughs> but when you're in those rooms and you are so adept at turning them around and getting people around to understanding the larger issues and what you were doing there and, and winning them over so often, were, were you ever like consciously thinking Henry Fonda or was that just, had that no. just become part of your DNA? <laughs> no, 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 uh, um, never really. Uh, if I was thinking anybody, I was thinking Jackie Robinson. <laughs> no. I was thinking, your want. You know, here, here you <laughs> yes. are. You are silly on, me. What was I thinking? Base, <laughs> and you're on third base and they're daring you to steal home. You son of a bitch. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll sneak in. No, no, what, 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 you know, the thing I used to, I, 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 I always say to people now um, is that I used to always speak without notes and people were very intimidated by that. Uh, because I would come on, you know, and I would give a 45 minute complicated speech without a single note, or I would go on the Buckley show and be the only one there without notes. And, and then people would ask all kinds of hostile questions afterwards. And I was always very adept at parrying them. And, 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 uh, uh, but what people never understood about that is that if I was in an audience and people were asking hostile questions for them and for you, if you were watching it on television, it was the first time. Right. But for me, right. I, you know, I never heard a question that I hadn't heard 14 times before. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, I knew which pitch was coming and, and, and I, and I, and I knew how to hit it. And, and, and it's, it's, you know, in the early years when I first started out, it wasn't that way because for me, everything was new and I got rattled and I got stumped. And I, you know, remember early on being on the radio and people would ask a question and I would, you know, mutter some cliche that I had picked up from a lawyer in the office and, and it was senseless. But, you know, by the time, by the time I was on those big public shows, um, uh, there wasn't a pitch I hadn't seen, <laughs> you know, I, right. I was, I was ready. And, and, and the other technique was, is that I always knew that the way, you know, it was like a stampede where you head off the, 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 the bull that's running in, in the front. And then the whole herd goes, I mean, what, what, what I would do is the first hostile question, the first really hostile question I would get, I would try to destroy the person. You know, I would just try to completely humiliate and embarrass them with a re with the response. And that tended to intimidate other people from getting up and doing the same thing. Because uh, nobody wanted to be subjected to that. And, you know, I usually knew an immense amount more about the subject sure, than the sure. person asking the question. So it was not, it was more like, you know, the, it was almost like having a, a, 
you know, a, a stand-up comic and somebody, some, somebody in the audience yells out a hostile question and the comic gives him a retort that makes him wish he had never gotten out of bed. And, and, and why is that possible? Be it's not just because the comic is quicker, it's because he's heard that remark before, 30 times before. And what seems new to everybody watching is not new to him. So, so you know, the combination of that, it was really, for me, it was a contest. It was a, it was a street fight. It was, it was, you know, it was what happened if I walked into a schoolyard and started playing basketball with people I had never seen before. And you knew that the first thing you had to do is establish yourself physically uh, before you could even think of playing. And it was a, a, a kind of a mano a mano thing. And that's what those, those public appearances uh, always were. And, and, and part of the advantage that I had is that, you know, I was steeped in this stuff. I, I had 35 examples at my fingertips. I did it, I did this every day, you know, every week for 50 hours a day. I, you know, there wasn't anything anybody could say that I kind of wasn't ready for. And that wasn't because I knew what was coming. It was because there was, after a point, there was very little that came that I hadn't seen before. And, and the same thing happened even on, on those, on those Buckley shows. I mean, you know, uh, uh, people were always amazed that at the end I seemed quicker than he was and he was so renowned for that. But part of it was that he was quite a bit older by then. And I don't think he was as quick uh, in the times I was debating him as he had been 15 or 20 years earlier. But part of it also was is that he was debating me on things that I really knew much more than he knew. Him, yeah, and, yeah. and um, uh, you know, and sometimes I would do research on him. Like, you know, there was a, he wanted to always have a show uh, in which the subject of the show was the ACLU and his argument was that the ACLU was, was full of baloney. And I think that was the title of the show he chose. And I went back and did, did research into his early writings in the 50s because I knew that, that that was there. I remember reading it. And I found, you know, articles he had written where he, mm -hmm. he supported Les de Maddox's right to exclude Blacks from his restaurant. And I knew that, you know, by the 1990s, that was a position that embarrassed him. That was a position he didn't want anybody to know about. So before he could attack me and the ACLU for some position that he thought would embarrass us, I would pull out his column and read that column on the air on his show and you know so there were there were there were times where you had to know who your opponent was you know you had to be ready uh for and you had to prepare more than you had to prepare for some guy in the audience um you know who was really an amateur at, at the stuff and didn't really know what they were talking about uh, when you were dealing with someone like, you know, Buckley or Newt Gingrich or, or somebody like that, uh, you had to kind of do oppositional research. You know, you had to find out where, where were they vulnerable and be ready to use it. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, on those kinds of shows where you were dealing with people who were formidable, 
you did have to do some kind of preparation. But on the shows in the general audience, where people would 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 just pop up and and uh, and 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 say say things, uh, you know, off the top of their head, that was that was easy for somebody like me, um, right. and it didn't require much much prep at all. Um, and so, yeah. So actually, kind of the opposite of Henry Fonda in Twelve Angry Men, who's who's just winging it. Oh yeah, he really was. Yeah. His character really was winging it. I mean, for him, it was all kind of instinct, and in a way, it was not very believable that an ordinary person would quite have been able to do what he did. I mean, I've been on juries, and 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 um, you know, it's not so easy when you got people acting out on juries to to to, to be to spontaneously spontaneously be able to do the kind of stuff that 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 he did. Um, you know, inherit the wind and judgment at Nuremberg, where you had, you know, lawyers like that were that were you know, hyper prepared, uh, and also and, those were court trials. The, 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 and those were, the right. transcripts already yeah. existed, so you're working from something yeah, exactly. that actually happened. I mean, no, but inherit Twelve the Angry wind. Men was originally a, a TV play. Yes. Uh, right. did, did you happen to see the TV play? No, I don't. I never did. Where Bob Cummings plays uh, Henry Fonda. Oh, is that right? Yeah, there's some, several of the other uh, jurors are in the TV version as well, but uh, for the most part, it's 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 largely recast, and it's uh-huh. it's it's not bad. It's like a Playhouse ninety, done in you know yeah. in, in real time. Yeah. Uh, but the interesting thing about the movie is that you know he changes the, the level of the camera throughout the entire yeah. movie, so yes. that as you're watching it, you're the, the 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 way you're looking at these people changes as the hour goes by. Uh, until finally the dominant character is, you know, is, is Fonda, who is at the beginning just sort of more of the crowd. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a great, Lumet, Lumet did a great job on that. It was, a, it, was a, it was a gripping drama. And, you know, and it's still, even when you know how it turns out, if you look at it today, it still, it still has that because the character development in all of the jurors is so good. You know, and and uh, uh, and Lee J. Cobb is, you know. Oh yeah. Oh, God, um, uh, there is one of the great uh, underappreciated actors of all time, Lee J. Cobb. He's he's amazing in that film too. Um, it's it's such a loathsome role. <laughs> and, and but, then, but in the end, him. you feel sorry for him. You do, <laughs> I know. And it's like this little man, this small soft-spoken guy just well his, his, you know in the course of the movie his life falls apart yeah that's that's really what happens it isn't just yeah. it isn't just that you know he's turned around or embarrassed by his racism or whatever it is that he's it's really his life falls apart i mean his that you can see his acting out of his own problem with his own son and his own and the whole thing just unravels on him and and uh, uh and it's it's uh and none of the others, you know, quite, quite fall apart in, in, in the same way. I mean, the guy who, who wants to get out of there so we can go to the polo grounds uh, um, is, is, you know, is a classic New York character. I was very glad he wanted to go to the polo grounds to see the Giants because I would have been very unhappy if he was a Dodger fan. <laughs> I mean, you expect Giant fans to behave like that. But <laughs> <laughs> Shall we, shall we talk about people who can't get over old wounds? Um, oh, yeah. No, no. That, 
you know, that's that's part of that's part of the thing about the, the movies that I like that you know that shape me is that I'm very big on not getting over old wounds. There are certain wounds you should not get ever get over, you know, and and they you know they they can't heal, they don't heal. You shouldn't pretend that they heal, and you need to use them to drive you. You know, it, it's 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 a um, uh, Somebody wrote, sent me an article the other day about a, uh, just this morning, I think, about a, a drug that apparently somebody is working on that will uh, affect the, uh, the cerebral cortex and, and uh, uh, keep people's memories from fading, keep people's memories alive. Mm. You know, um, uh, people in my age and older where you think you start to forget things. And they regarded that as progress. And I wrote him back and said, do they have anything that allows you to forget certain memories? Like, for yeah. example, October 3rd, 1951, at about 4.10 p.m. in the afternoon. Um, you know, I mean, why is it that I continue to remember Bobby Thompson's name? And, and you know, I don't want to remember that. That's not, you know, that's not fun. But, but no, those, those kind of things you, you don't forget. And... Um, uh, and, you know, I suppose there's a virtue of that. You know, the... the uh, 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 I once invited, I don't know if I told you this the last time when we were talking, we may have been talking about the front. And uh, uh, I once invited, when I was at the uh, Civil Liberties Union, Zero Mostel to, mm. to, to, to speak at, our, at one of our award dinners. And instead of not answering, talk about not forgetting things, um, he calls me. Uh, in my office, and he tells me that, you know, when he and a lot of his fellow uh, actors were blacklisted, the ACLU in the 50s did not stand shoulder to shoulder with them. I mean, they, and, and that that was something he could never forget. And, 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 um, and so no, he was not going to accept this. And and I said to him, well, I said, you know, I think most of us here these days share your antipathy about how the ACLU behaved back then. Uh, uh, but uh, the fact is there are certain things you should never forget and there are certain things you should never forgive. And I understand and I wish it were not so, but, and that's the way the conversation ended. And I, I kind of really believe that. I think, I think that there, there are, you know, there are certain, there are certain things that happen in the world that ought never to be forgiven and ought never to be forgotten, and 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 time, time should not heal those things uh, because they they were they were too grave and too consequential and too unforgivable. And so, so um, you know, the fact that I feel that way about a baseball game is a little bizarre, I know. But, <laughs> uh, None of us were thinking that. <laughs> uh, you know, these are the things that make us us, though, aren't they? Yes, well. I'm sitting here concocting a, a movie about a, a, a bunch of older gentlemen who devote their entire lives to becoming successful enough that they can buy the Dodgers back. And then they are confronted by a kid for whom the Los Angeles Dodgers are everything. And they have to, 
Well, you know, there was a legislator, a state legislator in Albany in New York in the, in the 70s, I think, who Tom Bartoshevitz, his name was, of God knows why do I remember that. And, and he actually established a commission that the legislature established designed to bring the Dodgers back to Brooklyn. This was probably, you know, 15 years after they had left. And, and there were still a lot of people, you know, who, who were uh, burning from, from that. And, and I got involved with him and I, you know, it was sort of a, it was somewhat tongue in cheek, but, but he was serious about, about building a stadium and, 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 bring, and trying to bring the Dodgers back to Brooklyn. And, and so, uh, Never sure whether this was a serious thing or a mock thing. I got involved in it anyhow, and 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 um, uh, and at one point, uh, one of my children looked at me and said, "You know, Dad, if the Dodgers do come back from Brooklyn, we're still going to be Mets fans. Of course, the Mets are our team, and of course, I was a crazy Mets fan too. But you know, there was no question if the Dodgers would come back to Brooklyn. You know, I I would have fled. That was you know, that was your, your first love comes back, you leave your wife, that's it, you know. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I remember my kids, my kids saying to me, you know, we're Mets fans. Um, we understand, wow. what, you know, blah, 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 but don't expect us to go along with this. <laughs> wow. And, uh, yeah, so that was, um, there actually, there actually was a book written, it was a novel called The Man Who Brought the Dodgers Back to Brooklyn. And it was all about a fantasy of a guy getting very rich, uh, who grew up as a Brooklyn Dodger fan and ends up buying the D Los Angeles Dodgers and and bringing them back. And I, of course, read that book as a great uh, passion play of a morality tale and still have it somewhere in my bookcase. But um, uh, yeah, well, we, the, the, the uh, you know, there's a line in the judgment at Nuremberg uh, in, in a way, it's not about forgiving, but it's about fateful steps that, once taken cannot be untaken. Um, uh, right near the end of that movie, uh, after the, the judge character played by Burt Lancaster is convicted and is in the prison cell. And he asks uh, uh, the, the chief judge played by Spencer Tracy to come visit him. And he, he gives Tracy a book that he wrote about legal ethics and justice and stuff, um, and 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 he he's he's basically asking for forgiveness, though he doesn't ask for forgiveness. But as I remember it, he says he says to Tracy at some point, um, "I never knew it would go that far." And Tracy looks at him steely-eyed and says, "It went that far." The first time you made a decision, you knew you shouldn't make. And, and you know, it was, a, a, those weren't the exact words. Maybe you remember the exact words, but, but, but it, was a, it was a very steely moment in that play because it was all set up for one jurist to understand and sympathize with another jurist and he stayed true to the lesson of that film, you know, yeah. and the and the and the issue of complicity, and the incremental way in which complicity functions, um, 
And you know, you take that first step, you do something immoral, it's only a small thing, it's not gonna go that far. But once you take it, there's no road back and, and, and you, you, are, you, 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 you take each further step a little bit at a time and suddenly you find yourself in a place you never imagined you could possibly be. And that was the position that, you know, and, and, and Lancaster's role is very sympathetic in that movie because he's the one who stands up in the middle of the trial and says, we're not gonna do this again. And he, his speech really turns it around. So at the end, you're really ready to be sympathetic to him and Tracy's character does not permit it. And it's a very, you know, it's a very, um, I found it a very powerful and moving moment about the nature of complicity and, and the nature of forgiving. Um, and another, like another movie based on a uh, television show. Yes, that a Playhouse was, Ninety with Claude. Playhouse Ninety, yeah, and that's Playhouse Ninety. That, at his time was a great, great. That's the famous uh, broadcast where the uh, they couldn't say the gas chamber because the sponsor was the American oh. Gas Company. You know, I, I don't know if I ever knew that or if I forgot it, but yes, I, I, now that you mentioned oh, it, damn it. that was that, what, really... that was what Rod Serling was rebelling against. Well, yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's oh, so insane. Well, what's what's next? Oh, my favorite year. Oh, yes. My let, let's get off the heavy duty stuff. My favorite year and a little romance. My favorite year. Um, one of the reasons that was a favorite movie of mine was because I totally love Sid Caesar and your show of shows. I mean, I, I, you know, with the exception of watching the baseball games. There was nothing else in the 50s that I so religiously watched and failed to miss I, every Saturday night. It was, and, and, and those, those, those shows with, with him and, and Carl Reiner and Imogene Coca and, and Howard Morris, and those skits, they were just, they, they ushered in a kind of insane kind of humor, an irreverent, uh, and an out of control kind of humor that never had existed before and that none of us had ever seen. You know, it wasn't Jack Benny and it wasn't Eddie Cantor and it wasn't, you know, Kenny Youngman. It was, it was, it was something no one had ever seen before and it was all live. It wasn't taped, you know, when people, you know, and that, and my favorite year captured all of that. Uh, you know, with the insanity of the way that show was staged and the unplanned things that happened and the fact that it was all live and that, and, and, and that, and that, you know, the way in which the, you know, the, the thugs come onto the scene and the way in which the uh, Peter O'Toole character uh, plays into it. And it had, it had all that zaniness that, that your show of shows had. And and even the character who who uh, the lead character Joe um, Bologna, Bologna. Play? Joe yeah. Bologna Joe Bologna Joe Bologna Bologna right um, uh, and he had he had that that Sid Caesar quality about him that Caesar was like legendarily strong and 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 was was uh, uh, was reputed to have held somebody out the window once <laughs> in a fit of of rage. Um, and, and um, you know, so I, so that movie was, was like watching, you know, video replays for me of, of that show. And, and it really, I thought it really captured it. 
in a, all the all the banter and the backstage banter and the, the writers and 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 the the utter zaniness of it um, uh, is a movie I can watch. You know, and 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 the, and the time when he visits uh, when the when the when the the young guy who's who's who's, who's supposed to be uh, uh, shepherding uh, the Peter O'Toole character around takes him to visit his his middle class Jewish mother in Brooklyn and gets the entire building there and everybody. I mean that was that was um, that was the audience for those shows and it was it was uh, uh, so yeah I love that movie and I I I watched it not too long ago again and it. It, for me at least, uh, it's a niche movie. I mean, I can't imagine that normal people relate to it in, in, in the way that I do. Um, but my wife and I, every time we see that movie, we're entrenched. I mean, and I think I only saw it a couple of months ago and I loved it as much as I ever did. It was just fabulous. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw it without uh, the background. I knew of the Sin Caesar show and I think I had seen as a child, they, they did a, Remember, didn't they do it? They did a theatrical feature. They right, did a Joe? theatrical feature that compiled a bunch of sketches. Yeah, uh, the best of your show and shows, maybe it was called ten. And, ten and from your show of shows. Ten years, yes. ten from your show. and and of course that has the the hallmark greatest sketch in, in television history, which is the parody of "This Is Your Life." Yes, uh, which yeah. is so incredibly funny. <laughs> how do you make, how do you do a parody of "This Is Your Life"? You have, it's. Well, you just do it, you do it literally. I mean, the thing about that parody was that it wasn't a parody. I mean, people who never saw This Is Your Life, you know, were, you know, thought it was exaggerated. It wasn't exaggerated. <laughs> you couldn't exaggerate This Is Your Life. You know, it was, and of course, for us, we grew up, we grew up in the 50s with those shows. We watched This Is Your Life um, and, and, and shows like This Is Your Life and Candid Camera. I mean, and and those kinds of shows were, right. were real. And then, so when you did the when you did the the satires of them, um, uh, it 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 you had the real show to 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 sort of be the backdrop for it. Um, uh, yeah, but I I have that that video ten from your show shows. Just it's it's uh, uh, there's so many of those shows that so many of those skits that were left out. I mean, the other one that is the one about where Howard Morris dresses the doorman uh, to the hotel and you think he's a general. You know that one? I don't remember that one. Uh, that's a classic too. Well, anyway, my favorite year evoked all of the that. Movie, yeah, I was going to say, it works. It works beautifully, even if you're not familiar with, with what it's, you know, basing itself Background, on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It, I'm, I'm sure it's richer if you've got that. But uh, that's well, it, it has a Proustian quality. Yeah, for, for, for me, that it wouldn't have, you know, if my son watched it. You know, it was. Right. Uh, uh, in fact, every once in a while, I I take out one of the the ten from your show of shows video, and I want to show it to you know my my 18 year old grandson, and he sits through it stolidly. He doesn't oh, no. get it. You know, I mean, the, most of that humor. Because it's such a, the whole show was such a satire of the 50s. I mean, you know, the Imogene Coca sits, sees her husband and wife things have no resonance now. They just look sexist when you right. look at them now. But, you know, they, they when, when, when he comes home from work and she's there and she's supposed to be making him dinner and she's crashed the car and run the car through some pharmacy and 
busted the car and the window and she's trying to figure out how to tell him about this and i mean it's such a, it's it it's so misogynist <laughs> that it's very hard for people to appreciate um uh how much fun they were making of that misogyny back then when it was right. routine and standard and well, that's, that's also thought. true of the honeymooners yeah, which is, which is now considered in, incredibly misogynist, and uh, yes. he's constantly threatening to threatening to beat her, beat her, and send her to the moon. Right. Uh, and, then, right. and then you know, I Love Lucy is a, a a somewhat toned down version of the same thing, where the wife gets in trouble and then has to the father has to come and bail her out. Right, right. It was a um, uh, there were different kind of satires than you know the all in the family satire. I always. I always thought, I mean, and I once said this to Norman Lear, who was a big ACLU supporter, um, uh, that I thought that All in the Family was not helpful. I thought that All in the Family could have legitimized that racism rather than making fun of it. Uh, uh, it, that it, put, it put it into a very sympathetic light um, at the time. Um, I, I I did not get joy out of that show, uh, but but the um, uh, but the making fun of the misogyny uh, was was uh, and you know the, the 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 professor interviews that Karl Reiner did with 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 uh, uh, with the German professor that sits he's a plays was always such a puncturing of pomposity and and academic you know full of yourself kind of stuff. And and I thought those were all those were all great. So um, yeah, so my favorite year evoked all of that for me, and and um, and and for that reason, it was a kind of a uh, a uh, a plunge into into a uh, into a as I say a Proustian past. It was it was my favorite year was sort of my Madeleine, you know, right. Uh, and um, uh, and then you know a little romance. Um, uh, tells you something sort of different about me that I suppose. Yeah, I was going to say this one seems unlike anything else. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, first of all, it was romantic, and and um, uh, I I'm a big romantic. I mean, I loved Sleepless in Seattle. You know, I mean, I thought that was just a fabulous fantasy movie. Uh, but a little romance is is so charming, and those two kids. Are so good in it, and and um, and Olivier plays such a kind of a rascally charmer, um, and and uh, you know here's a guy who's a petty criminal, but who's such a good guy, <laughs> you know? and and uh, and the the uh, uh, the persecution of him or the attempt to persecute him is so in in a way unjust, and you know the way he ends up. Making them whole on the on the uh, on the the bet that they make on, uh, on the race by by pickpocketing people, and you don't find out about that till later. But the you know the romance of those two young kids is so delicious, and and you know it, it's 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 wishful thinking, and it's 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 a fantasy, and it's 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 a mirage. Um, but you know you end that movie thinking. Those two are going to get together, <laughs> and and um, you know, and it isn't it isn't the before midnight, after midnight, the next morning kind of trilogy that 
that uh, that other mm. that other movie was a Julie uh, Julie Delpy Delpy made, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I also loved. Uh, but mm. but but a little romance, a little romance was just, and it was so well done. I mean, the acting was so good in that, and and uh, uh, all of them, and and uh, so yeah, I. I I I uh, I have to stick that movie in there, and, and uh, uh, it isn't exactly the Seventh Seal, but it's, <laughs> it's it's a lot of the reason why you watch movies. You know, it's it's yeah. a it's a it's a really delicious um, uh, piece of entertainment, and and um, and the, you know that whole thing about the, the you know the Venice and the, and, the, and getting the boat to the go under bridge of size yeah. and stuff. You know, if you've ever been to that, I remember the first time I was in Venice. Uh, uh, I thought it was the most romantic city of all time that I had ever been in, and uh, beat Paris, beat Paris. It was just, and so you know that whole thing about getting under the Bridge of Sighs and, and, and the two of them kissing and how they met. You know, it was just it was uh, it was a uh, a sweet, delicious movie. Well, I'll say the one the one aspect of it that I differ from you wildly is um, uh, I think unlike you, I'm pretty much the same age as those characters, and I did not want Diane Lane to end up with that young man. Um, and I still to this day, it was oh. the, the film she did last year with with Kevin Costner, I was like, she should not be with him. It's, um, <laughs> so that, she should uh, have been with you all the time. Is I, that the idea? All the time, all the time. Yes. Well, yes. I, I I identified more with the young man. I yep. mean, the, the, oh, I'm just saying I identified with her. I'm saying that she yeah. should, she should, you know, yeah. she'd be better yeah. off with me is the point I was trying. That's to make. right. That's right. Yeah. He, well, she probably was. Of course, you don't know what he became. He had a lot of, he had a lot of, um, that young kid had a lot of pizzazz, um, the boy. Eh. Probably became anyway. a stockbroker. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Probably. Um, well, wow. I, Ira, thank you so much for doing this. And thank you, especially for, for coming back after the catastrophic tech issues. Um, we we uh, appreciate it immensely. Folks, you, you, uh, the, 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 the doc, there is a doc we talked about at the beginning, uh, Mighty Ira. It's out. It's streaming everywhere. It's, it's such a wonderful, uh, wonderful look at, at Ira's life and his career and the incredible things that he has done uh, for all of us, even if you don't know it. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if I said this at the top, Jesus, everyone listening to this, this was an hour and a half ago. It was three weeks ago. But um, uh, you're an American hero, Ira, and uh, you're a hero of mine. And it's just um, uh, a thrill to be able to have this conversation with you. Well, thank you. I, I, I deeply appreciate that. It's the kind of thing from the, that, you know, you never get tired of hearing, especially if, it's, if, if people really believe it. And as, as I know you do, and it's it's uh, and uh, this is a special treat for me too to talk about uh, films and you know the stuff that you do because that's so much a part of the fabric of all of our lives and and it's uh, it's nice to be on a show where you don't have to talk about the First Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment <laughs> and why stop and why stop and. Pr- you know. He did do eleven movies, Joe, and I wanted to stop him, but then I realized uh, no, no, he, has, no. he has that right. There's no stopping. So. We, have, we have to heckle. Him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ryra, thanks. Thank All right, so thank you. Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. 
we can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Stay safe out there, folks. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.